Good morning. I invite our uh, two through four-year-olds, those headed to toddler nursery and to children's church, to be dismissed at this time, those adults going with them as well. Those who are remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 18. As we continue our songs for our Savior series, Psalm 18. Beginning in verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of the song, and the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrent of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple And my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went out from his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed uh, the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rolled upon a cherub and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him past his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and he scattered them and lightning flashes in abundance and he routed them. And the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth as into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord was re- uh, has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he's recompensed me. For, he, <clears throat> for I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put uh, away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save and afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abuse. For you light my lamp. The Lord, my God, illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and and makes my way blameless. 
He makes my feet like hinds feet. He sets me up in high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You also have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind, and I emptied them out as a mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as a head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that you have supplied in your word. Thank you for what this word does to us by your grace and for your glory and through your spirit in accordance with the promise of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that this gift is for our transformation. To cause us to see you for who you are. To see ourselves for who we are. To see Christ for who he is. To be led by the spirit into a life of being conformed into the image of Jesus. Abandoning our father Adam and embracing our life in you as you our father God. Father, thank you for what this psalm teaches us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to the victory over death and our enemies that we have through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So this morning, as I mentioned to you, if you were with us last week, uh, yes, we're doing all of Psalm 18 this morning. And yes, I knew we had a mission moment and I knew our service would be longer. And no, I didn't eat a lot of breakfast, so I'll probably be quick because I'm already hungry this morning. So I didn't eat my Wheaties like I told you to eat your Wheaties. I'm sorry. But really, this uh, psalm can be broken down into four parts. You'll see that in the notes in the back. And those four parts actually help to keep it kind of contained, even though the psalm itself is a little bit longer. So beginning in the first six verses, we see David make a declaration of his love for the Lord. He says, I love you, Lord. I love you, O Lord. And then he begins giving out reasons why he loves God. Now, I've been radically transparent during all of the psalms up to this point. First 17 Psalms, with the exception of maybe one of them, have 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 been have had some rough edges to them. 
And the more you go through the Psalms, the more you realize Psalms have rough edges to them. It's a sincere cry of the heart. They're mostly songs to be played on instruments and sung together. And it's one of the reasons this is a different conversation for a different day. I'm happy for anybody to take me to lunch and us to have a conversation about this. But it's one of the reasons why I don't get too overly concerned if the lyrics of songs don't necessarily seem to represent things as quote-unquote propositionally truthful as we might like for them to. Because that's not the point of songs. Just not. The Old Testament has songs that we probably ought to sing that we never would preach or teach in our theology classes. Like, God, you're like a mother bear nursing her cubs. Well, we know God's not a woman who nurses anything. I wouldn't preach that from the pulpit. But they sure did sing it in the Old Testament as a poem. He's like a mother eagle coming to tend to her young. Oh, well. So is God a woman? No, that's not propositional truth. It's metaphor, poetry, exuding an idea and a thought that might not be found propositionally. There's a reason why Hallmark cards work at Valentine's Day. And they don't usually just have some real just, you know. When I see you, there's a flare up in the hypothalamus like that's not how that works in those cards. You know, it's it's you know, I love you more than all the oceans and the stars and, you know, that kind of thing that it's it's excessive hyperbolic language making a point that can't be made otherwise. And so I'm okay with that. I think that's good. I think that's valuable. And so when this is happening here, David begins breaking down all the reasons why he loves God. And we would do well to get into a practice like that in our lives. And so he starts using a bunch of these metaphors. So here's some of the things. There's at least nine things in these first few verses that David lists out about God as to why he loves him. Lord, I love you. You are my strength. You're my strength. Now, in a just raw, factual sense... David was able to stand up on his own. God had endowed him with the gift of physical strength, like he's endowed most people with the gift of physical strength. And David was able to get up out of the bed in the morning, and David was able to go and prepare a meal, and David was able to go and train for war, and David was able to just through his own strengthfulness. But the reality of it is, is that theologically speaking, underneath all of that, none of us have any strength apart from what God supplies. I stand on my own two feet today. I'm not promised to do that tomorrow. This is the power that God has sovereignly over all things that exist. In him we live and we move and we have our being. And David acknowledges, I love you, Lord, because you are my strength. Not just my physical strength, but my spiritual strength, my emotional strength. My psychological strength, my relational strength, any place in my life where I feel some measure of being strong. It is because you have supplied that as a gift to me and I love you for it. He then moves on and he says, you are my rock. Now, we all know that God is not a rock. We're not pantheist or panentheist. We don't think that God is in all things. And that, you know, I see this drum, God's a drum and God's a speaker and God. No, that's not how we view this. So we know God's not a rock. David is being metaphorical here. Yes. 
Right? Remember, this is poetry. It's the Psalms. We got Paul. He lists out ideas. We got David. He sings songs to us. And it's important for us to understand the metaphor of the language. So what does it mean that God is my rock? It's that firm foundation, that immovable thing, that thing that I can build my life on. Jesus used a similar metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who built their lives on the sand and those who built their lives on the rock and those who built their lives on the sand. The storms came and blew it all away. And those who built their lives on the rock, it was able to withstand the storms of life. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus would be referencing something that David was talking about. If we want to be really honest about it, David was referencing something that Jesus was talking about. For whatever that's worth. Because God is his rock, he loves him. You are my fortress. That place that I can run into and wage war against my enemies and succeed. Who are our enemies? We've talked through this so many times in the Psalms already. There's the powers and principalities and the dark forces of this age. They are our enemies. There are those antichrists that exist in the world that stand against the gospel. They are enemies of ours. There is that old man dying in me and he is my enemy. And God is my fortress, a place where I can wage war against my enemies and succeed. And God and and. David loves God for this. He says in verse two, you are my deliverer. The one who sets me free. Delivery from what? Well, David's about to talk about all these enemies that are coming up against him. We have the introduction that's about all of those who stood against him and Saul who stood against him and he was delivered from that. Does God deliver us from real time, real space realities? Of course he does. But God also delivers us from the invisible powers we don't see and from the darkness that abides within. The greatest enemy that I have ever faced in my own life is the enemy within. The thing I need the most deliverance from, Philip Dancy needs to be saved from Philip Dancy. I am legitimately my own worst enemy. I must be saved from my sin. I must be delivered from who I was in Adam. And I must be remade into who God desires for me to be in Christ. And David understood if anybody got this, David got this. As we go through some of his other Psalms, he makes it really clear. In in iniquity, my mother conceived me. I was knit together in my mother's womb in, in sin, basically. David really understood the level of his depravity. He needed to be delivered from himself. You are, to put it very plainly as you continue in verse 2, I love you, Lord, because you are my God, friend. How easy would it have been for every one of us who claims belief in Christ in this room today to have spent the whole of our lives chasing some lifeless idol? I don't think that we spend enough time like David does right here expressing our love to God because he is our God. He could have left us to ourselves. 
And we could have exchanged the glory of God for the created thing and for the creature, for the thing that crawls on its belly, for the thing that flies through the air, or for the two-footed man, the self-worship that almost all of us have had or would have continued to have pursued had it not been for salvation in Christ Jesus. And David cries out, Lord, I love you because you are my God. Molech is not my God. Baal is not my God. The gods of Egypt that I heard about when you delivered the Israelites in the Exodus, those are not my gods. You are my God, the one true God, the one real God, the God who sees and who hears and is close by and not far off. You are my God. And I love you for it. And then again, David's favorite go to you are my refuge. He repeats rock again and then moves into the idea of the refuge, the one in whom I take refuge, this safe place, this place of joy, this place of delight, this place of, of, of sure victory. And then he says, you're my shield. Remember, not, not, not the little bitty and slam that thing into the ground, bury yourself behind it, make sure nothing gets through shield. I can only imagine the weight and the majesty, the height, the depth, the breadth of God's shield. I'm just going to work under the suspicion that nothing is getting through. You're my shield. You are the horn of my salvation. We could have spent a couple of weeks just on that. There's so much going on with that metaphor. Horns were used to have the anointing oil in. Horns are used for battle cry. There's a whole bunch of different things that are going on. And for David to make the declaration that the Lord is the horn of his salvation. You have anointed me with salvation. You have given me victory in salvation. Your battle cry over me is salvation. There's so many different ways that you could take it. Say, Philip, which one's the right one? Yes. All of them. That's the beauty about poetry. When it's intentionally vague, when it makes reference to things that could be referenced multiple ways, and it doesn't give you any contextual clue as to how you should take it, take it all the ways. That's why they did it like that. The best poetry has multiple meanings on purpose. And God is all of these things, and and He loves the Lord for this. And then He closes with, You are my stronghold. In the New Testament, it talks about us having a stronghold of sin that we often return to. David understood that. He had strongholds of sin in his life. And he loves the Lord because the Lord and not his sin is his stronghold. That's just the first three verses. 47 more to go. And then he acknowledges that the Lord is the one who hears. The Lord is the one who hears. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, I call upon the Lord. I call upon the Lord. He hears us repeatedly over and over and over again in the Psalms to this point, And he will continue to do so in the other Psalms that he writes. And the other psalmist will do the same thing as we continue through the Psalms. They make a point to emphasize regularly that the Lord hears us. I have found in the scripture, this is kind of a general rule. If someone says something over and over and over again, it is because 
the people who are hearing it, the people who are reading it, the people who are receiving it, struggle with that truth over and over again. As human beings broken by the fall, who have a relational disconnect with God, and even in our state in Christ, have not fully realized our image bearing as we ought to, have not received full glory as will come one day at the final redemption. We struggle with hiding our shame in the bushes like Adam and Eve did. Having heard the voice of God, having walked with God in the cool of the day, having had an open relational presence with God. Now where there was hope, now where there was love, now where there was joy, now where there was peace, there is still fear because of the fall. And you see that. Ever since the fall in the scripture, when people encounter the one true living God, their response is always terror. That was not Adam's response before the fall. When God would arrive to walk with him in the cool of the day, we did, we received no testimony from the word that Adam went and hid and cowered away from God before the fall. He didn't do it. That's the only response that we have now. And here, look at what he says. I call upon the Lord. He hears me. He's not deaf to me. He's not distant from me. He is relationally close to me. Friend, this morning, as multiple mornings on Sundays during the Psalms, you need to be reminded of that. If you are in Christ, God hears you. No matter what it is you're going through. No matter how hard it is right now. No matter how patient and suffering you have to be. God hears you. He is not far off. And David declares this to us again. I call upon the Lord. And if you keep going through, he makes it really clear that God is hearing what he has to say. And why would he call upon the Lord? Other than all these reasons he's listed that he loves him. But notice, he calls upon the Lord because the Lord is worthy of praise. And we could run into all of the reasons that God's worthy to be praised. But we don't have time. But they are many. People ask me, you know, Philip, I, I want my prayer life to not be so, so mundane. I, I want to be able to pray and, and not just have it be kind of a checklist of, you know, Christmas list type wants of, you know, I got a sick friend and I got a friend who's having a problem and a job issue. So I, I really want there to be this relational intimacy of prayer. And I always encourage people, I say, I'll tell you what, the next time you pray, just start by naming out all of the reasons why you think God's worthy of being praised. Just start there. And, and block off a little time and don't stop praying until you run out of things that you can think of as to why God's worthy of being praised. Remarkably, people's prayer life becomes very robust all of a sudden. 
You don't ever even get around to confessing sins or asking for wants or needs or desires because you don't ever really run out of reasons to find why God's worthy to be praised. I call out to the Lord who is worthy to be praised. You never want to say anything in the scriptures an understatement, but boy, that comes really close. Worthy to be praised is like the biggest summation statement ever. And I call out to the Lord because I am saved from my enemies. He saves me. And if you go through the psalm, and we're about to walk through the rest of it, from my enemies, from death, from spiritual suffering and sorrow, from distress, he runs through all of these things. In fact, in verses 4 through 6, that's what we see. The cords of death encompass me. He saves me from the, the torrents of ungodliness. He sa- saves me from the cords of Sheol. He saves me from the snares of death. And in this distress, I cry out to the Lord. He has heard my voice from his temple. My cry for help came into his ears. He's not deaf like the idols. And God saves me from real physical enemies, from real death, from spiritual suffering, from distress. He hears and he appears. And then, friends, we're going to just kind of break off in verses 7 through 24. You're wondering how we're going to make up the time. Here it goes. There's the appearance of the Lord. Notice what he says. The earth then shook. And quake. I know this makes people a little uncomfortable. But David calls out to the Lord. And he has this vision, if you will, of God appearing to help him. And the description that he gives of God's appearance, friends, is eschatological in its description. It is an end times description of God showing up to save David. This mirrors many of the other end times appearances of the Lord. It's the appearance of judgment on his enemies and salvation for his people. And so what does it look like when the Lord shows up like this? He didn't show up like this the first time. You remember the story in the gospel? Jesus, born to a no-name family on the backside of nowhere. Some angels showed up. Who they show up to? The shepherds of all people. Really? Nobody ever wants to second guess God, but in our world of modern branding and marketing, like you seriously need a different marketing director. Like you don't show up and tell this to the shepherds. Why would you do that? And why would it be this family? And why would it be that town on a backside of nowhere that nobody cares about? That's how Jesus showed up the first time. Not how he's showing up the second time. Not anywhere close to how he's showing up the second time. And look at what happens here. Listen, listen to this. What is it like when the Lord appears in an, as, in an eschatological, end times, salvific judgment reality? What does that look like? The earth shook. The mountains trembled. Friends, that, he, that's not easy to do. For the whole earth to shake and all of the mountains to tremble. Like we blow by that. Like we read it, we go, oh, the earth shook, mountains tremble. No, no. The whole thing. All of them at the same time. Globally. No one was unaware. It wasn't like those earthquakes that you get where you go, was that earthquake? 
I heard we had an earthquake today. No, 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 no. Everybody knows about it. Notice, continue. Smoke coming out of his nostrils and fire coming out of his mouth. The heavens themselves bowed under the pressure of God entering into the physical reality of this world. He rode upon a cherub. He flew on the wind. Verse 10, that word for wind is spirit. There's a great spiritual reality to what's happening here. There's darkness and then there's brightness and then there's thundering. This is just a a, a radical interworking of all of the things that overwhelm us. What overwhelms us? As human beings, absolute darkness, the inability to see that overwhelms us. That's really hard for people to deal with. It usually takes special training for people to deal with complete darkness. Do you know what else overwhelms us? Absolute brightness. Because guess what happens with both of them? Absolute darkness and absolute brightness. In the moment that you go into them, you cannot see. Doesn't matter if it's bright or if it's dark, if it's absolute and immediate, it has the same effect on you. You are overwhelmed and you lose your senses. And then, of course, loud, sudden, unexpected noise. The other day, just this past week, some severe thunderstorms and tornadoes moved around through our area. In the afternoon, I happened to be at home while some of that was coming through. And the kids were at camp, and my wife and I and our, our littlest one were outside. And the field right next to our house apparently was struck by lightning because as soon as we saw the flash, we heard the clap all at one time. And it shook our house where we were standing. And my youngest son responded absolutely perfectly. He screamed and squealed louder than my wife did and said... That was scary, and he ran into the house. You're right, buddy, it sure was. Because this is the human response to terrifying things. And this is God appearing in judgment. With the brightness, and with the darkness, and with the thundering. All of creation essentially becomes undone. It says the foundations open up and unfold. Hailstones and coal of fire. Uh, the, the deeps are laid bare. Verse 15, the channels of water come through. But notice why he does this. Why does God show up with such ferocity? This appearance was for the deliverance of his saint. Friend, hear me this morning. For all of the differences of opinion that people can have about the end, here's one thing that we all need to like really celebrate about the end that we should all be able to agree with together. One significant part of God's end times return of the Lord Jesus Christ in such an aggressive and majestic way is for the deliverance and salvation of his people. Look at what it says. Verse 16. He sent from on high. Why? For what reason? He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. He delivered me from those who hated me. Why? They were too mighty 
for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. They were overwhelming me. They were about to destroy me. But the Lord was my stay. And He brought me forth and put me in a broad place. Hear this. Listen, listen, listen. Oh, this, friends, do not skip on this. He rescued me. Why? Because He delighted in me. What? There's nothing in me that God should delight in. Not one thing. I know this to be theologically true. Left to myself in Adam, I am an enemy of God. That's what the scripture says. I was by nature a child of wrath. I was worthy of the destruction of God. And what did he do? When he placed me in Christ and he delivered me in repentance and in faith and the glory of the gospel and the spirit overwhelmed me and a new heart was placed in me and I was moved to conformity of the image of Jesus. God now delights in me. It can't be true. There is no way. But dear friend, this morning, hear me. No greater and more wonderful truth should you embrace in your life if you are in Christ than the fact that God, when he sees you, sees his son and he delights in you the same way he delights in him. So much so that he will do all of these things that we just read about. To deliver you. That's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. Why would God be this way toward us? Sinners that we are. Why would he be this way toward us? Verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. I have not departed from his ways. I have cleanness of hands in his eyes. Why? Because he has given me his righteousness in Christ. And then, friends, when we get to verse 25 through 48, there's a way that God deals with his people. I'm so curious as to why God would be this way toward me. And this is the explanation that David gives in 25 through 48, how God deals with his people. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With those who are crooked, you show yourself astute. You save, listen to this, an afflicted people. An afflicted people. Those who suffer. Those who struggle, those who experience pain. You say, well, I don't suffer, I don't struggle, I don't experience pain. Then you've not dealt with your sin. You don't have to be poor according to the world's standards to be in poverty of spirit. The richest people that I know are often the ones who are most wrapped up in their wretchedness. 
Those who've had everything given to them as a blessing from God. Please, friends, connect this back to last week if you weren't here with us. The end of 17. Remember the wicked who received all the kind blessings from God and they cared nothing about the God. They only cared about the blessing. They were lost in their sin. They had abandoned their meaning of creation. They were not reflecting the image of God. And David said, I don't care any about that. I just want to see God's face. And there's a way that God deals with his people. You save an afflicted people. And when you save them, you give them good gifts. And friends, we're going to run through this quickly. But look, look at what he does. Beginning in verse 28 and just running down. First, God is our light in the darkness. You light my lamp. You illumine my darkness. Notice what he says. You don't illuminate the darkness for me. The Lord, my God, illumines my darkness. David is acknowledging his depravity and his sin apart from the work of God and salvation. His inability to see anything on his own because he is spiritually blind. And God, as a good gift to him, illumines David's darkness where now David can see. That's incredible. God gives strength to overcome. Verse 29. For by you I can run upon a troop. By you I can leap over a wall. There's this power That comes spiritually that now is ours because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. God gives the good gift of his perfect and pure word. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Friends, this is such a magnificent gift because without it, we would have no knowledge of who God is, what he expects, what he's like, what Christ has done, who we are without him and who we are in him. It is such a marvelous gift that he has given to us. He supplies to us protection. God is our rock. He's our shield. It says here as we continue. He gives us balance. Make my feet like hinds feet. When you set me up in the high places. I remember this so vividly when we were in Israel all those years ago. And we would see those mountain goats, particular ones to that region. And I kid you not, the cliff facings were like this. Like there was nothing. There were, there were little bitty places kind of dug in the edges like this big. And these goats are just running around on the sides of these walls like from some superhero movie. Not falling, not slipping, not worried about anything. You know, they're, they're just balancing in that little bitty thing that's on the side of their literally tilting like this, like hanging. Like how are you de- defying gravity this way? And it's, oh, there's a little bush over there. Bloom, bloom, bloom. And they're at the bush and they didn't fall. And it was like, this is the most incredible. That's what David's talking about. God, you've given me the gift of balance. I will not fall if I'm in you. You give me victory. You train my arms for battle, he says. I can bend a bow of bronze. There's this victory that we have in the Lord. There's mercy and there's glory that he gives to us. You see, as you continue to move through in verses 37 through 39, that victory that we saw before and the enemies turn their back. They don't have anyone to save them. And then there's this mercy and this glory that comes. The Lord lives. He's our rock. He's exalted us. He's subdued people in front of us. You continue and you see this reiteration of a firm foundation where there's no stumbling and there's no falling, but the enemies are the ones who fall. There's a destruction of his enemies that come before him. 
This is an incredible reality that David is talking about here. All of these good gifts that God gives. What should our response be? In verses 49 and 50, David declares the response. Therefore, what will I do? Why will I do it? I will give thanks to you. Now, friends, it's not just a generic thanks. This is the challenging part. I will give thanks to you. To my family, to my neighbor, to my friend, the people I go to church with. There's other passages for that. And that is true and we should do that. But David, when he talks about this kind of glory of God, this sort of judgment, this sort of salvation, this sort of superiority and sovereignty of the Most High, I will give thanks to you among the nations. Everyone else needs to know that you are this kind of God. I don't need to keep that to myself. And I don't need to just talk about it with my friends who already agree with me that you're this kind of God. Everyone, everywhere, needs to be made aware that you are this kind of God. I'll give thanks among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. Friends, the response is worship. And when we worship, two things are supposed to happen in worship. Yes, there's supposed to be a vertical reality of worship. I sing praises to the name of God. I exalt the name of God. I give glory to the name of God. I come alongside with other people and we collectively and corporately give glory to the name of God. But friends, in our worship, we are also supposed to give glory to God horizontally out this way. You, image bearer in the world who does not know Christ, I'm going to give glory to the name of God by telling you the only hope that you have as one who should should reflect his glory, but is not right now. That's also worship. Worship isn't just what happens in here. Worship is also what happens out there. And David understood this. David understood this. And then notice... What David understands is going to happen because of all of this. He, God, gives great deliverance to his king. Gives great deliverance to his king. Y'all, this is beautiful. He shows loving kindness to his anointed To David and his descendants forever. He gives great. That word for deliverance is also victories or salvations. He gives great salvations to his king. He shows mercy to his anointed. To David and his descendants or his seed. Singular, by the way. Forever. Friend, there's only one great 
deliverance. There's only one great victory. And not to belittle David, but there is only one great king. And his name is Jesus. And God gives, again, poetry when there's not context can go both ways. God gives great deliverances to his king. The salvation of the nations are a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ from God the Father himself. God has a people that he is redeeming. He is saving them in Christ and for Christ that they might reflect Christ. And friend, if you truly want deliverance from your enemies, the greatest one being yourself, if you truly want deliverance from death and the power it has over you and the sway it holds over you, if you truly want abundance of life, life that is unparalleled to any you could build for yourself in this world, the only source of hope for such a thing is to be found in the great King, Jesus. Because there and only there do we have the loving kindness and the deliverance of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this remarkable truth. That Jesus and Jesus alone is our deliverance from, protection from, death and our enemies. Thank you that in Christ and in Christ only can we find life. Father, forgive us for the ways that we neglect your glorious name. When we do not express our thanks, our gratefulness, your name's glory to the nations. When we do not sing praises to your worthy name. Father, when we allow petty, small, insignificant things to hinder us from making much of you in your son through your spirit. Father, may the picture of your glory in Christ being manifest to us through the vibrant life of your spirit in us cause us to live lives that make much of you. Father, this is a promise that you've made to your people. That you would not only deliver us, but you would indeed conform us to the image of Christ. That you would make us like him. And Father, we welcome this change. And we thank you in advance for this change. 
Make us willing to throw down all the hindrances to that change that exists in our lives. And we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I invite